Hi, it's Patrick here, and bear with the voice. There's not going to be too much of me in the pod. Here is a noteworthy exception to what sometimes seems to be the blanket copywriting of our society. You cannot copyright book titles. If someone else wants to use your title, they can. They can use a variation, or they could use the very words themselves. So if I wanted to, I could write a book with the words Harry Potter in them. Well, actually, maybe I couldn't because I'd run into trademark issues. Harry Potter is not just a book, but a series of books and a series of movies and a whole manner of merchandise. How about if I wrote a novel called Nemesis? Philip Roth did. And he's not the first. There are several novels called Nemesis. No problem. Same with the title Pure. Andrew Miller wrote a book with that title that was published in the U.S. earlier this year. Got a very nice review in the New York Times. No matter that he's not the first or the last person to choose Pure as a title, there's a newer Pure already out, in fact, by Chinese-British writer Timothy Mo. And then consider autobiographies. One of the favorites for those is a little linguistic punning number, Past Imperfect. It suggests honest assessment as well as a juicy story or two. Actress Joan Collins' autobiography called Past Imperfect, that certainly delivered on all those counts. And then this sweet revenge. That can be used as an autobiography, though it does sound a little vindictive. It is used quite often in biography, especially when the subject is someone about whom we have mixed feelings. Sweet Revenge was the title of an unofficial biography of TV and music mogul Simon Cowell. But Sweet Revenge, that, that title is just far too good. Maybe good isn't quite the right word. It's far too smooth an idea not to be endlessly recycled. I get this. Sweet Revenge is the title of at least 15 romance novels published in the last couple of decades. Yeah, and the subtitle for the Cowell bio is An Intimate Life of Simon Cowell. How many times have you read that? An Intimate Life of dot, dot, dot. So it's subtitles as well as titles. Maybe I'll do a podcast on An Intimate History of Words. It sounds ultra-honest and exclusive and steamy. John Sutherland, he's been thinking a lot about book titles, and he's the author of two books with quite distinct titles. The Boy Who Loved Books is one of them, and Is Heathcliff a Murderer? Mm. The BBC's Mark Lawson asked him about it. Legally and technically, if anyone decided to write a book called The Boy Who Loved Books or Is Heathcliff a Murderer, there's not very much you can do, is there? No, um, titles aren't copyrighted. It's a very interesting subject because it seems to me there are two considerations. The first is sometimes it's larcenous, it's theft. People try to steal something. There is, for instance, a book which was available on Amazon until quite recently called I Am the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. It's 30 pages long, electronic. A lot of people bought it. Uh, the, The author, Karen Peoples, claims to be quite rich on the product of books like this. But it is, it is clearly, it is clearly sort of uh, what it is not. It is not the Stick Larson. And there are, there are other examples. They go right, right the way back to Dickens. This is the Dickens year. I mean, when Dickens brought out a, a popular novel like Oliver Twist, the penny press was quick to come in with something like Oliver Twist or Dombey and Daughter <laughs> or David Copperfull. It drove Dickens mad. <laughs> you know, just as, as, in fact, thefts of his work for, mm. for dramatisation drove him mad. That tradition is, I think... Larcenous, 
But there's another tradition which is really rather witty, the book dial M for Murdoch. Mm. Now, quite obviously, yeah, that, that <laughs> in fact, we know where that's coming from. <laughs> and I suppose if you're a, a Hitchcockian, you might be rather, mm. rather angry then. But no, it works very well. It's, it's elusive. And, it, and it's it not may- and it's not the same title, crucially, I think, is it? Where it's no, the it's same. The, the only example I can find in which um, I, I'm aware of, in which someone's managed to get some kind of disclaimer, there was a rather bad movie called Body of Evidence. And at yeah. the time, Patricia Cornwell got stickers put on the posters saying this is not based on her novel because she had a best-selling book out of the time. Well, you, but you, 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 mentioned, you mentioned Patricia Cornwell, but she wrote a book called The Book of the Dead. Now, I don't mm. suppose any mummy is going to come out of its coffin. <laughs> <laughs> just don't revenge it. I mean, it doesn't matter that much. And, you know, it's all small change. And there are so nice, so many books. They don't go away mm. books. And the other thing is that sometimes uh, you get two with the same... At the moment, there's a movie out at the moment called This Must Be the Place, and there's a book of photographs of South Africa by Peter Hugo called This Must Be the Place. But in that case, both of them are taken from a, a third source, which is... The David Byrne song, and often if you're taking titles from the public domain, you can't complain if somebody else does it. I, th- I think Revenge is sweet. There's, isn't there? Mm. Isn't there a band called Revenge is, is yeah. sweet? And there's certainly a number of pop songs. But in this case, uh, Sweet Revenge. But that goes from fiction to non-fiction. Yeah, it does. It's I suppose revenge. in this case, there's no possibility of anyone being confused because it's unlikely, yeah. despite his claims yeah. to be a Lothario in the book, that Simon Cowell could be mistaken for a Mills and Boone romance. Well, you, you mentioned, without wading into it, pornography is very interested in titles. I mean, one of my favourites is um, Saving Ryan's Privates, mm. which I, I rather <laughs> like. And there's a lot of... And I, I've never seen it, by the way. But uh, you know, that, that's one of the areas where people are very inventive. John Sutherland. And I absolutely love the name Saving Ryan's Privates. That could be a new parlour game, in fact, turning film and book titles into porn names. And the title, This Must Be The Place... It is a really good title. The song itself, not my favorite Talking Heads song. I prefer this one. When my love stands next to your love, I can't compare love when it's not love. And aside from liking the song, there's a reason I'm playing it. The title is Love, and then there's a horizontal arrow pointing to the right, and then the words Building on Fire. And remember, or maybe you don't remember, this song was written far before the time when those arrows became just another instrument of expression on on Twitter in particular, but, but also elsewhere. For me, at least, it was the first time, what was it, the late 70s, it was the first time I'd seen an arrow in a song title. I'm sure they had arrows or something similar in modernist poetry and that kind of stuff before then. But I'd only really seen them in math or physics or, you know, a Venn diagram, something like that. But that device is exactly the kind of device that Tom Wolfe has inserted into his prose over the years. He's still at it, too, as we'll hear. Wolfe's new novel, Back to Blood, is set in Miami. It's another cross-class, cross-race opus of urban American life. In fact, it comes 25 years after his first novel, still his best-known one, The Bonfire of the Vanities. Anyway, he talked to the BBC about his use of language, which really goes back to his days as a reporter when... He was at the vanguard of a movement known as the New Journalism. 
it was one of those it breaks all the rules movements that later got subsumed into conventional journalism, at least conventional magazine writing. Also, I think it influenced an awful lot of the public radio reporting that you hear now. It's fun to hear him talk about, as he sees it, some reviewers may not agree, how he's pushing the boundaries with language, with punctuation, and with the subject matter too. He talked first with the BBC's Mark Lawson about how, in his view, American writers avoid writing about America's biggest theme, as he sees it, its big wound, race. Here he is. Race, you know, is an extremely important subject that influences your life in the United States. Nobody touches it. It's as if you're going to say something terribly politically incorrect if you even touch it. So they don't. I, I think you can't leave it out if somebody's living, particularly someone living in a city, and it's as true in Miami, if not more so, than, than it is in New York. Anyway, I just think these things are just constant factors in, in everybody's life. And I think to leave it out is kind of folly. As you suggest, you do take on race very squarely again in, um, in the new book. And every aspect of it, here's a speech, for uh, example, and this is um, a young Creole woman speaking. Right now, he wants to be a neg, which is what the blacks from uh, Haiti call, uh, call themselves. We have Cuban-Americans, we have Creoles, we have black Americans. We, everyone is included. We have the, the wasps, uh, uh, the white Americans who, it's made clear in an early page, are dying out. Everyone is there, pretty much. Well, if you're in Miami, the interconnections or inter non-connections and abrasions are just everywhere. And as a result, there's not even one capital S society. There's a Jewish society, a WASP society, there's Cuban society. It's just, it's broken down in infinite uh, categories. So no one really even writes about society in Miami because it's sort of useless. One of the ways in um, Back to Blood, as in your previous books, that you try, you represent the, um, the divisions in Miami, in this case, and by extension America, is language. Um, incredible attention to language as ever. At one point, one character tells a trilingual joke. Um, the central character, who is a Cuban-American cop, one of his problems is he doesn't understand Spanish, but everybody thinks he <laughs> yeah. thinks that he will. Two of the African-American characters, they worry about the cops are going to start speaking Spanish in front of them. We have Creole. We have um, English. English, as you were taught it and I was taught it, um, is dying. It's pointed out that the whom is disappearing and doesn't, doesn't has become don't. But it's a huge subject for you, language, isn't it? Well, it is because it also ties in with status. I, in many parts of that book, I'll have someone who is not well-educated, not sophisticated, hear a word that somebody else speaks and will be, in many cases, will be envious and feel bad about himself because he doesn't understand the word. Obviously, some word that <clears throat> that is supposed to be like treatise or monograph which um, a young um, a young nurse she has no idea what he's talking about her boss a lot of the time I don't know I must have, I bet I was in my 20s when I first heard the word treatise spoken but that's that's very typical and I think those those are the things in many cases that people notice and some of them resent somebody for, uh, for resorting to these bookish words in, in conversation I love all that stuff <laughs> You've always been an unusually visual writer, and right back to the new, the, the new journalism at the beginning. Um, how a book looks on, how a, a piece, a book looks on the page, 
in Back to Blood, you have you use a lot. Um, it sort of looks like dominoes. It's it's two lines of dots to to show um, when someone is thinking rather than speaking. I figure rather than saying something, something, something he thought, I would just do these six colons. They are six at the beginning and six at the end, uh, and pretty quickly I think the reader understands these are uh, the, these are thoughts. And it's fun to have somebody saying one thing and in the middle in their thoughts saying the opposite. And it's, it's, I think it's just a very convenient way to, uh, to do things like that. At first, there was a little opposition from publishers, that, uh, uh, and they thought it was some special. Hey, look, it's colons. You have, you've got lots of colons. <laughs> but you are unusually visual in that way as a writer. I mean, a lot of novelists still write in the way that Jane Austen wrote novels, whereas um, you uh, famously, the, the capitals, the exclamation marks, the lines of dots, um, you do think a lot about the way it, the way well, it looks. I do, I, and I defend my exclamation points um, by saying... Uh, that we think in exclamation points. I think it's really true. We think in we don't think in essays, for God's sake. I think also the, the dots or the ellipses. Um, well, I just hesitated. I didn't get up the next words. <laughs> Give me some dots. Put it, put it in the middle. Another thing that is unusual is that one of the things that people are taught at creative writing courses is don't repeat words. And um, you do it deliberately and uh, very specifically to get movement, to get a sense of movement. So we have here, um, Nesta has the willpower, the willpower, the willpower, the willpower. And the point of the repetition there later, we have people running, 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 running. It's because it's hard. It's very hard for a sentence to show movement, isn't it? Yeah, I I agree with you. I hadn't really thought it out that well, but... I do find if you repeat the words, eventually the reader will get the idea. He's running. Uh, and I guess I've done that. I've actually done that quite a, quite a bit. Yeah. And um, I recommend it. Tom Wolfe speaking with the BBC's Mark Lawson. I know, I know, I keep saying it, but Cartoon Queen Carol is around the corner. In the meantime, there's our website, theworld.org slash language. There's The World in Words on Facebook. And there's me on Twitter. I tweet as Patrick Cox. P-A-T-R-I-C-O-X. See you next time.